Very Bad Wizards is a podcast with a philosopher, my dad, and psychologist, Dave Pizarro, having an informal discussion about issues in science and ethics. Please note that the discussion contains bad words that I'm not allowed to say, and knowing my dad, some very inappropriate jokes. Many of you woke up and you realized you were wrong about everything. You just, you just woke up and you go, God damn, I've been wrong about every single thing I've ever believed. <laughs> Welcome to Very Bad Wizards. I'm Tamler Summers from the University of Houston. Dave, I finally realized why you are such a Kantian. You're just trying to make yourself sexier, aren't you? I think that you have the uh, direction of causality reversed. It's my inherent sexiness that leads me to favor Kantian ethics. <laughs> is that what it is? Yeah, and I, I actually think that uh, from from the little we've discussed uh, what we're about to talk about, you might be more content than me. Um, and you're certainly not more sexy than me. So, so this throws a wrench into the, uh, well, I'm more desirable as a long-term mate for sure. (laughs) And I actually think there's definitely a way that I'm sexier. (laughs) Now you're just using the term sexy in ways that nobody would ever use. It's an abuse, conceptual abuse. I'm alpha. (laughs) Oh, is that right? That's right. Uh, well, you know, from, from, uh, from all the beta males, we salute, we salute you. <laughs> That's right. You do. So the minute you walk into a room, we, we can totally tell, you know, we put our heads down and we refuse to make eye contact. <laughs> and I actually don't like that. I, you know, like I can sense it from your body language. I just want to hang out, you know, as equals. Yeah. I wonder yeah. what that, what is that like? It must be hard. It must be, <laughs> must be difficult. All right. So today we have a bunch of things we're going to talk about. Um, well, first of all, we have David DeSteno coming on the podcast to talk about his new book, Emotional Success, The Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. He'll be on in the second segment. We'll talk about the book and we'll talk about other things. Um, before then, we're going to talk about a new paper what previous guest nina strominger strominger yeah nina strominger (laughs) she described on twitter as the ungodly marriage of evolutionary psychology and trolleyology um, which was very funny and (laughs) it and it is she is absolutely right it is um a paper that that posits that people who are deontologists are more desirable as long-term mates than utilitarians and i guess short-term mates it's about the same yeah but actually neither of them are all that desirable (laughs) 
um, uh, so that so so if you really just want to hook up, if you just want to play the field, you got to be a virtue ethicist of some kind, <laughs> maybe a moral nihilist. Oh yeah, nihilists get all the action. Yeah, they do like the Marquis de Sade. <laughs> yeah. Those guys from the Big Lebowski. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. He had a girlfriend. She was willing to cut off his toe. Her toe. She, we believe in nothing. Before we talk about that paper, let's find out how utilitarian we are, just to make sure that we are well to see if we're desirable or not as as long term mates. Now I'm married. This is actually huge for you, Dave. <laughs> Well, you know, just because you're married doesn't mean you're desirable as a long-term mate. Right. I feel like the real question is, is, is should be directed at Jen. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true. I think that's true for a lot. It's it's definitely true for me, and it's probably true of a lot of married men that they're married but not necessarily desirable as long-term mates. I, I really, really uh, hope that this leads to people... Um, uh, including you know in their basic stats like on dating websites like when they say like oh you know i'm a capricorn i'm interested in like horseback riding and rugby and i i score a 23 on the deontological <laughs> scale um oh the, the, speaking of which we are going to for our patreon subscribers who we love we'll be talking about hang the dj um for our first patreon special episode. that's right a little so, mini episode yeah uh, which is, you know, the, uh, relates to dating and dating apps. And uh, okay, let's. Uh, so this is a scale, the Oxford Utilitarianism scale, that was designed by Guy Kahan, who is a philosopher at Oxford, and then a bunch of people I don't know. Jim Everett, good guy, co-author of mine. Brian Earp, listener oh, yeah. of Very I Bad Wizards. Yeah. Molly Crockett, um, former for, former guest. I know all these people. Yes, you do. <laughs> yeah. uh, a lot of authors, and this comes from a paper called "Beyond Sacrificial Harm: A Two-Dimensional Model of Utilitarian Decision Making," published in Psych Review, which is the oldest and most prestigious theoretical journal in in wow. in our field. Um, and a little bit of background: I think that we've, it, and we'll get to this when we talk about the other paper that, that measures of utilitarianism have <clears throat> or deontology have tended to rely exclusively on on sacrificial dilemmas as as the measure of utilitarianism and there are a lot of problems with this we've talked about this before for instance um dan bartels and i published a paper critiquing this saying like basically you're capturing people who just like to throw people to their death right so so it's not that's not what utilitarians really are and one of the things that guy kahan has really pushed which i think rightly so is that if you really want to measure utilitarianism you have to include the pro-social aspect to it like the obligation to actually do good which is what real utilitarians actually care you know real utilitarians aren't going around you know trying to sacrifice innocent people all the time no in fact they never i would wager that you know the ultimate utilitarian peter singer has never just sacrificed somebody um in order to save like three other people well you don't know because utilitarianism would require that he keep it completely quiet that's true yeah, no. <laughs> uh, to not give it a bad rap, and in fact, I mean, it would you would think that utilitarianism would try to shut down that study, um, <laughs> the, the the secret utilitarian <laughs> society, um, so that, se- that controls the world. Apparently, what this means is that there's only going to be one generation of utilitarianism. <laughs> 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 
<laughs> not, first of all, they're not going to be desirable as long-term mates. And if they do have kids, they'll barely give any money to them. So the kids will probably not survive to adulthood. Well, no, this is actually saving them because they'll learn that they need to lie for the sake of the greater good. Right. Yeah. They're just going to like present as deontologists. So now we, all right, let's, gonna, okay, go for it. <laughs> let's take the scale. We'll, we're each going to do it. Um, we've done it. And we'll, before. Put a, yeah, we'll, we'll put a link to this. It's only nine questions. Yeah. Um, well, we start out with a sacrificial dilemma, although uh, if the only way to save another person's life during an emergency is to sacrifice one's own leg, then one is morally required to make this sacrifice. And this is on a Likert scale ranging from strongly disagree to strongly agree. Right. With not nine points on it, neither agree nor disagree is the middle. So, sacrifice your own leg. Um, you're morally required to make uh, this sacrifice. Yeah. So I dis I disagree. My my answer is a two. I disagree. I Not agree. strongly. I just disagree. I disagree unless and then this is a little under described. Like if it's somebody, if it's like my best friend, or if it's Eliza, certainly, if it's Jen, you know, if it's somebody that like I'm I'm close to then I would agree. But if it's a stranger, then I'm, I disagree. Right, right. And the key, the key here is not that I don't think it's praiseworthy. It's that I don't think it's required. Right? It's not a right. Absolutely. Right. Like it would be great if you did it. It's just right. above and beyond. It's super erogatory. <laughs> exactly. It's my favorite superpower. <laughs> uh, erogatory. <laughs> okay. Number two, it is morally right to harm an innocent person if harming them is a necessary means to helping several other innocent people. So I'm going to either disagree or strongly disagree with this. I mean, it's not morally right to do it. Yeah. Um, permissible uh, under some circumstances, maybe, but I right. don't know. I think I'll, yeah, I, I, I I'll disagree. just disagree. Yeah. From a moral point of view, we should feel obligated to give one of our kidneys to a person with kidney failure since we don't need two kidneys to survive, but really only one to be healthy. So this is yeah. interesting that they qualify this, and unlike, the say, the first one, with from a moral point of view. And right. I don't know what that means exactly. I know that's singer language. But I don't know what it means exactly. I think they're just finding a different way to say the other one said morally required and, and uh, morally right. And this one is see, saying morally obligated. Hmm. Which So I, I take it that their intent is to keep, keep the, same, the same style of question with different wording. So isn't that just the same question as number one, but with your kidney rather than your leg? Yes. So yeah. I think they're trying to get just multiple measures of the same thing. So well, I disagree. So um, I strongly disagree. And and as I thought about why I would have stronger disagreement, I think it's just a virtue by virtue of the question because this is <clears throat> at a level of concreteness where I, I actually could do this. It, that is, right. question one is, you know, imagine you had to sacrifice one's leg but this like we could literally sign up tomorrow yeah and so like the guy so, who read paul's book <laughs> exactly so while praiseworthy for sure um uh, uh obligatory no way like this this is right um I, I i i may not need two kidneys but 
The, but I, I, there's a lot of risk associated. The only reason I'm putting disagree instead of strongly disagree is that I, I think there is something about that from a like I get that from a moral point of view, but there are other points of view, and that's why. So I disagree, all things ah. considered, but that's why right. I would put disagree and not strongly. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Now, now, I, like I feel the need to say at this point that like it's not that I'm not pulled by these by these uh, reasons. I actually. I, you know, if you ask me to design a world in which people would be utilitarian, like I might actually say, like we should, we ought to feel this sense of obligation to help others like this. But, but I, I, I can't help but, but, but be honest about my opinion here um, when it comes to my own life decisions. So, well, because you're not allowed to lie, according to Kant. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, if the only way to ensure the overall well-being and happiness of the people is through the use of political oppression for a short, limited period, then political oppression should be used. This is a tricky one because I, I don't buy that it is that you we will know that it's the only way to ensure the overall well-being and happiness of the people. So I don't know how much to is is it if we think the only way to ensure the overall well being and happiness. I, I mean, I think the best way to read this is just like accept that there is a world in which this is known, right? Where this is a hundred percent certainty, because yeah. or, or else like it's you know. I'm gonna neither disagree or agree. Then see, this is the one that actually pulled me. So given that it is a short, limited period. Um, and what's underdefined here maybe is political oppression. But if you can imagine, say, martial law for a limited period, that is where we get some basic freedoms denied for the sake of of long-term happiness, um, then I, I'm more pulled by this. If what you mean is like the sacrifice, right? Like kill, like ki- killing a bunch of black people for the sake of like the majority, then, then like, I'd be like, no, no. But if it means just like, just for, just for a little bit, sit tight. You're not allowed freedom of the press. Um, but I promise you it'll come back in, in, in a year and everything will be copacetic. Then I, I would put somewhat agree. All right. Do it then. I mean, this is your totalitarian streak. I knew you had it and well, it's uh, revealing <laughs> itself in a somewhat like scary way right now yeah just 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 like your content just like your contentism is is uh rearing its content head um okay number five from a moral perspective people should care about the well-being of all human beings on the planet equally they should not favor the well-being of people who are especially close to them either physically or emotionally i strongly disagree with this I think I, like that you have absolutely you should not favor the well-being of strangers over the well-being of your kids or your family. Um, I I somewhat disagree because I'm I'm again sympathetic to to this the this view that at least we ought to care more about other people. So I, I'm. I'm I'm like an aspirational utilitarian here. Like I, I don't want to close the door for people to think that this is a good thing. Like the the you know even though it's obvious that you just like want to save white Jews, I actually <laughs> think that like you know Mexican people, the in, the Incas in Peru, the Hutus and the Tutsis, they all all deserve my see. My, uh, I, moral the, I don't want anyone from the shithole countries. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> 
<laughs> uh, okay, number six. It is permissible to torture an innocent person if this would be necessary to provide information to prevent a bomb going off that would kill hundreds of people. Now, this is a hard one for you because you've confessed to me off air your sexual attraction to Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> I don't even get that joke. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but no <laughs> no i find i find him to be quite unattractive um 24 uh, this is like 20 like every this is every season, every season of 24 pretty much i mean i only saw the first couple but i mean this is one where like knee-jerk liberalism gets in the way where where if you say torture is never provides useful information so so granting Again, the premise of this question, yeah. that torture would, in fact, provide information. Yeah. I am all for it. I am all for it, too. Yeah. This so is I where put, our sadistic... I would agree. Yeah, I'm putting <laughs> yeah, it agree. Right. <laughs> it is just as wrong to fail to help someone as it is to actively harm them yourself. This is omission, acts versus omissions. Yes. Um, again, maybe in a motivated sense... Um, if this were true, I would be burdened with the, the, the equivalent to murder of thousands of people every year. Yeah. And I don't want to believe that. So I'm going to strongly disagree to this one. Yeah. I guess I'm just going to, well, I'll strongly disagree because I don't believe it. Right. I mean, this is again, a case in which like it, it, if if it were a matter of simply like lifting someone's head up from the bathtub as they're drowning versus like versus not do, like not doing that when you easily could then then yeah but if it's like you know i could donate 10 bucks right now and save a, 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 some starving kid like 5000 miles away which i take it is what they're asking then, then and we, that's not the same as killing the kid <laughs> yeah exactly and yes Sometimes it is morally necessary for innocent people to die as collateral damage if more people are saved overall. It is morally... I mean, I guess I have to say we agree with... I mean, don't we have to agree with this given that it is sometimes morally necessary? I mean, you know, if uh, like to stop the Nazis, a lot of innocent people had to die... Yeah. Yeah. I, again, like it, I, I'm, it's a matter of empirical fact and I am not morally too distressed by it. I mean, it bothers me. I don't like, it's not ideal, but, um, I mean, I think the, the key is sometimes I like, yeah. it's not always necessary, but there are sometimes, no. and it depends on the, this is my, my problem with this scale is that I do think these things are underdescribed in that how many people are we talking about? Wow, yeah. you know what is what's what's the like? These are very context um, dependent questions for me. A lot of them, and I might go from anywhere from strongly agree to strongly disagree if more of those details were filled in. I mean, and I think what this betrays is not just us being nitpicky about about these questions. What it betrays is that I, I think that in some sense it is misguided to think that people are one thing or another. Absolutely. That if if there is if there is anything uh, close to capturing human moral psychology, it would be something more like at best some kind of particularism where we pick principles to 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 uh, for specific situations and at worst unprincipled yeah. where we we are using whatever cues to judgment in that particular situation that we think will will be the best yeah um so 
So, yeah. Yeah, but I mean, numbered- I, I could take that stronger and think this whole thing is completely misguided, even though it's better than most utilitarian measures. But, right. yeah, there is a big part of me that, that thinks this whole thing is completely misguided. You, you sort of alluded to this. There's three dominant ethical theories in 20th century ethics, right? Virtue ethics, utilitarianism, deontology. And these are worked out well, and all of the sort of distinctions between these two and the internal consistencies or lack of are, are discussed. Thinking that the human mind somehow is structured in the way that philosophers have arrived at these three general theories is, is I, I think, a mistake. I mean, at, at, there's no reason to think that the human mind would conform to the structure of, right? It's, it's almost like asking, like, are you a post-structuralist? Like, what are human beings in their lay life? Like, are they structuralists? Are they, it's like, I, you know, they're nothing. They're nothing. Like, if you get them to think really hard, maybe you'll get them to, to report, um, uh, some sort of consistent thing, but I don't, but we don't walk around with this. <laughs> okay. Last one. It is morally wrong to keep money that one doesn't really need. If one can donate it to causes that provide effective help to those who will benefit a great deal. So this is one where I think I have to say that I somewhat agree with yeah. it, but I was going to say the same thing because that, I'm, I'm willing to condemn myself yeah. Um, um, for for this, I think that this is the one aspect of my life that I could do a lot better, a, yeah. a lot better, and I and I think that it's a good thing to to hold this as as an obligation. Maybe not in you know in the way where I would be living like a pauper, but but certainly more than I do. <laughs> I did cut the cord. I don't know if that helps. Oh, good. Okay, I'm getting my test results now to see if there's any test retest reliability. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, I am only one point off of what I did previously. I got a so, 28. What did I get last time? 26. 26. I got a 31 last time. I got a 30 this time. So 63 would be the top score. That is, if you answered strongly agree to all of the utilitarian flavor questions, you would be a Peter Singer. Um, I fall into this this sort of, if you loosely categorize into four the first is you score seven to twenty. You're not very utilitarian at all. You, you can't be convinced that maximizing happiness is all that matters. Um, <laughs> that, that 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 pun thing get, needs to be old. retired. Yeah, I think <laughs> we need a more ten year moratorium at least on that. Uh, so we score. We fall under the twenty one through thirty one. You probably think the consequences are important sometimes, but you're still not very utilitarian. That's right. That uh, that describes, I think. The view that I have, yeah. yeah, but it is very interesting that you are more Kantian than I am. I, um, I'm not. I disagree that I'm more Kantian. I, like I'm less utilitarian. The, those two things, which it's means, like I'm no. like Bernard Williams is not a utilitarian, and but he's also not a Kantian. There are only two things you can be, Tamler, and we'll <laughs> leave it at that. You are, <laughs> you're, you're a deontologist. You're a Kantian. You believe in the noumena. Well, that, you, <laughs> that is what the study that we're about to talk about, although probably not right now, seems to sort of assume. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and a lot of studies uh, uh, do assume that. Uh, and that is that is the result of there being uh, a widespread use of dilemmas that have two options. So if you only measure people by asking them, do you like A or B? It is just a feature of that question that they're either going to be more towards A or more towards B, right? Nobody's bothered to ask if they are C. But it's like saying, are you a Patriots fan? No, then you must be a Cowboys fan, 
Yeah, no, it's it's almost like saying, are you a Patriots fan or do you like olives? It's like one or the other. <laughs> um, uh, that actually works be- for me because I don't <laughs> like olives. All right, so let's talk about this uh, ungodly marriage <laughs> between trolleyology and evolutionary psychology. Um what would be the offspring for that like what what would they produce uh antinatalist yeah a really a, a really horny josh green i don't know I don't. isn't that redundant <laughs> um, until he comes on the show we're just gonna take we're just gonna always say his name um in is, vain. Uh, we're gonna get an email from him saying Keep my name out your mouth, because that's how because that's how he talks. <laughs> that's after screen talk. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this paper is pulling the lever. Sexy deontology is a downstream cue to long term mate quality. Uh, Tamler, you um, texted me this. You lo- you loved this paper. No, I I can't say I, I loved this paper. Um, and you know what? I, I actually don't think we have time to discuss it right now. We need to bring on Dave DeSteno. We've been going for about half an hour. And and with this paper, I feel like I have a, a rant in me, this particular paper, which even as social psychology papers go, seems to be a pretty egregious example. So let's take a break. This will we'll tease this. For, for next episode. All right, we'll be right back with Dave DeSteno. But first, Dave, I've got a problem. I resent my own daughter. She's she's 40 years younger than you? It's not just that, although it is that. It's also because she now has a Casper mattress, and I don't. So we just got Casper as a sponsor for this episode, and they were generous enough to offer us a free mattress but my wife and I had just got a mattress a couple months ago, so I had them get one for Eliza, and it is so comfortable. It's so ridiculously comfortable, and I know I should be happy for her. It's, it's the American dream for your children to do better than you, but you spend a third of your life sleeping, and so all I feel is bitter resentment. Hey, that's a normal part of growing up, to have a bitter, resentful parent in America. <laughs> uh, well, I have nobody to resent but myself, because I... Did not exercise the poor judgment that you did, and I actually had Casper send me a mattress. But that's in part because I had already bought my daughter a Casper mattress a few years ago, and I loved them. And I was hoping that one day I could actually uh, have one of my own, and now I do. The quality is amazing. Um, Casper brand mattresses combine multiple supportive memory foams for a quality sleep surface with the right amounts of sink and bounce. And I don't know how else to describe that because that's the right way to say it. It's soft when you lay on it, but it offers that firm support that I actually totally need for my back. If, if a mattress is too soft, I wake up like an old man, like hunched over. With Casper, I've been sleeping so well. It's breathable, so it helps you sleep cool and regulates your body temperature throughout the night. Um, Casper is not just a mattress company. They offer a wide array of products to ensure an overall better sleep experience. They even have dog beds. Yeah, I'm not you know resenting that? my own dog. I refuse. <laughs> That's where I draw the line. It's not only ridiculously comfortable, it's also affordable because Casper cuts out the middleman and sells directly to the consumer. It's delivered right to your door in this box that 
you'll ne- you you won't believe or at least if you're me you won't believe that that mattress could fit in that box you'll think they made a mistake and you open it it fits the bed perfectly and they have no hassle returns if you're not completely satisfied there is free shipping and free returns in the United States and Canada. and So you can be sure of your purchase with Casper's 100-night risk-free sleep-on-it trial. You get 100 nights, and you can return it at any point within that period if for some reason you don't find it as comfortable as we do. So start sleeping ahead of the curve with Casper. Get $50 towards select mattresses by visiting casper.com slash badwizards and using the offer code badwizards at checkout. We'd like to thank Casper for sponsoring our humble little podcast. Again, if you visit casper.com slash badwizards, you'll get $50 towards select mattresses if you enter the promo code badwizards. Here you hop, I'm sphere, I know you've been scared, I'm prepared to face the pressure when I put it on you, blame your people, show somebody should've somebody should've won you. Welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. At this point, we'd like to thank all of the people who interact with this podcast in all the different ways that you do through email, through our Facebook page, through Reddit, through Twitter, through Instagram. You can email us at verybadwizards at gmail.com. Go to facebook.com slash verybadwizards. You can go to Reddit. We have a subreddit um, slash r slash verybadwizards. You can follow us on Instagram, verybadwizards. Tweet us at verybadwizards, at Tamler, and at Peas. We really appreciate all the different ways that you get in touch with us. It's so gratifying. And we also appreciate all of you who support us in more tangible ways. And there are three ways that you can do that, all of which can be found at our support page, verybadwizards.com slash support. You can go to our support page, click on that Amazon link when you're feeling frisky on Amazon and you might want to buy something, maybe buy something expensive or not expensive. It all it's all great. Um, just just click on, on on that link and then we will get a small cut of whatever you purchase at no cost to you, no additional cost to you. Um, you can PayPal us a one-time donation. We love those one-time donations and we also love our Patreon supporters. We are so grateful for all of you who make a commitment to support us regularly um, every month or on a per-episode basis. 
Um, you can find us on patreon.com slash verybadwizards. We ha- we're just in the process of revamping our rewards. Right now, um, our $1 supporters will start to get um, Dave's Beats. Up till now, that had been just for uh, our $2 supporters. And our $2 supporters can get Dave's Beats plus, the, um, plus a... Um, little extra bonus content and we're going to be releasing one very shortly on black mirrors hang the dj it'll just be loose almost entirely unedited periodically we'll put out some some content that will be available for that level and up for our listeners and then five dollars and then end up you get to help choose a topic for uh, a, a future very bad wizards episode that happens about a couple times a year so thank you all so 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 much we are we really appreciate it let's bring on dave destano uh, welcome back to Very Bad Wizards. It is uh, my pleasure to introduce our next guest, uh, David Desteno, who is a social psychologist at Northeastern University um, and who has a book that just came out, right, David? Uh, yep, just uh, came out. It's available on Amazon. Um, I highly recommend it. We'll put links in the show notes to to buy it if it sounds at all interesting to you. It's called Emotional Success, the Power of Gratitude, Compassion, and Pride. And uh, before we get into the nitty gritty, I want to just say a bit, express my gratitude for Dave Desteno. So Dave, you and I have known each other for a long time. Um, We didn't overlap in grad school. No, it feels like we we did, but it's a psychological overlap. Exactly. We're academic brothers. Through the principle of transitivity, uh, we overlapped. Um, uh, Dave was a Peter Salovey student a couple of years, graduated a couple of years before I arrived. Um, now but, I feel old. You know <laughs> why? Because I'm old. You should feel young. It's, I said only a couple of years. So that okay. Makes you okay. Like Thirty-one. Well, it's relative. Um, I feel relatively old. <laughs> I I don't remember even how we met, but but Dave has been sort of like a a big brother to me in the truest sense, a collaborator and a mentor. We've collaborated on on a project, Dave. I, I give you a large chunk of the responsibility for me even getting tenure because it was with you that we got an NSF grant Bob Frank, <laughs> to, to study trust. So, you're too kind. So I am truly grateful uh, for Dave and, and you're a good friend. So whatever uh, rude and insulting things Tamler says, I will defend you. <laughs> uh, I also, uh, uh, Dave, enjoyed the book. So I'm looking forward to talking about it as well. And I hear that you're a, a Red Sox fan, a Patriots fan, too. No. <laughs> well, yes. I mean, I mean, in reality, I was born and 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 bred in New York, so I'm still a Yankees fan. Which which now I'm in trouble wow. for because this is going to go on. Yeah, but but the the, the reason Tom thought that yeah. is because I just mentioned to him that you took me to a Red Sox. Game. Oh yeah 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 I yeah. did yeah yeah. yeah. Uh, I mean, I they, like the Red Sox, but you know. Yeah, you are you are if you're not with us you're against us is, is um, okay so this has taken a whole different tenor now <laughs> the uh but yeah i went to the red sox game with uh our former advisor now the president of yale how cool how cool is that that's right. he still had time for us that's right and he taught us the, the very important skill of how to actually score a baseball game 
Yeah, he sat there and literally with pencil and yep. paper scored the whole baseball game. I, I went to a game recently and saw just a kid. It was like, a, I don't know, maybe a 12-year-old, 13-year-old girl doing it. There's something so nice about the fact that in this age that people are that still people scoring are still games it. with pencils and papers, you know, yeah. where most of the other kids are like on their phones, not even looking at the game. Yep. And she was just scoring it. it old was school. Great. Very old yeah. school. Yeah. So, okay, let's get let's get into a discussion of, of this book. And, and I think... I think like maybe it, starting out with I, one of the biggest problems I think in in psychology, or at least in in the social aspect of psychology, which is, for lack of a better term, patience. I like economists mm. like that term, patience. How it is that we at all are capable of foregoing short term interests for the sake of long term interests, right? Mm-hmm. The way that you introduce the book is that there is this common spiel, and many of our listeners will know this, which is that, like, well, the way that you do this is you concentrate really hard, you avoid the eating the one marshmallow for the sake of the second marshmallow. So there's all kinds of, of strategies. So these are from the old experiments done by Walter Michel and others. Mm-hmm. This is like a key problem for economists, right? They're the ones who dub it patience. We call it self-control. Mm-hmm. Um, and this seems to be so necessary for the existence of humanity and our, our ability to do things like you know, build buildings and have careers that like, it's pretty clear that it's pretty central to, to who we are. Right. But we fail all the time. Mm-hmm. Right. Like we eat Twinkies and we watch <laughs> porn and, <laughs> and we put off what we could do today for tomorrow. Sure. Um, do and- you eat, really eat Twinkies? <laughs> no, I don't actually. <laughs> Nobody eats gross. Twinkies. <laughs> I eat RX bars, Tamler. Um, <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, they're not sponsoring this episode. No, they're not. So it's, it's a day we don't eat. Um, and so the the way in which I think sort of the lay sense in which we, we get over this, the, the way in which we are able to forego short-term smaller rewards is by just like gritting our teeth and exerting willpower. And you say, no. This is the wrong way. This is actually a really bad way of doing it. And 30 years of psychology telling us that what we need to do is just just try really hard is actually the wrong way of doing it. Is that yeah. a good summary? I think so. I think that's right. I mean, I think we all agree, right? The ability to do this, to value the future more than the present, to have patience or self-control is important. But we're failing, right? So Kathleen Vose, who's a friend of ours, you know, has, has great studies out there where she followed people around for weeks and she shows, you know, one out of... Every five or six times they try to resist the temptation to stick to their goals, they fail. 8% of New Year's resolutions are kept till year's end. 25% of what's today's date? Uh, the 15th? Yeah, 25% 15. have failed by now. And so, Happy MLK Day, by the way. Happy right. MLK Day. Happy MLK Day. And so if this is so important to our success, why are we so bad at it? And my argument is that we've kind of got it wrong because where did self-control really come from? You know, it wasn't so that we could save for our 401k. It wasn't so that we could complete the whole 30 or not eat the sec- not eat the first marshmallow. It was for millennia so that we could cooperate with other people, right? And that's what ensured success was cooperation. And to do that, you had to have good character. You had to be fair. You had to be honest. You had to be generous. And what were the emotions that underlie that type of sacrifice that enabled cooperation? Kind of like our, our, our friend Bob Franks, you know, says these, these moral emotions are what makes you value the future and makes you willing to sacrifice. And 
This whole book is about showing how we can take those emotions that normally make us willing to invest in other people, pivot them so that we cooperate with someone else who's important to us, and, and that is our own future self. So Robert Frank focuses on a, a whole suite of emotions, including anger and moral outrage, mm-hmm. but you take a narrower set of emotions, right? Yeah. I mean, if you think about social emotions, these emotions that kind of undergird social living, there's positive ones like gratitude and compassion that I'm talking about. And there's negative ones like shame and outrage. Um, for me, and, and all of them work, but if you're going to cultivate some as a, as a long-term strategy, these positive ones are much better for you because of the physiological effects we can talk about in the building, the social capital. You know, shame will give you, and anger will give you a kick in the butt when you need it in the moment to behave, but long-term right. cultivating them is not a good strategy for success. You know, that's almost anti-Semitic. You know, it's like you're putting down shame and guilt as, <laughs> as important drivers of, of action. And I, and I feel like there's, you know... I, I didn't say that, I didn't say Dave likes important. to be the only anti-Semite. You're kind of encroaching on his territory here. <laughs> I didn't say they're not important. I just said in terms of, in terms of your well-being, uh, there's a different way to go. Okay, we'll get to, we'll get more to guilt before, but I actually okay. want to talk a little bit about uh, about the statistic that only eight percent of people keep their New Year's resolutions. Mm-hmm. So let me just quickly ask, like D- Tamler, do you make New Year's resolutions? We do. We've talked about this, so we make them by the month. So here's what we're going to do for this month, and that because then that makes it more manageable. I don't think in my whole life I've kept a New Year's resolution for a whole year. Even like something like meditation, which I have done now for two years, it started as a monthly resolution that just, and then that just built the habit. Where's the point where the meditation is going to make you start expressing gratitude to me? <laughs> I'm waiting. I'm waiting for the. Uh, I'm waiting magic. for you to do something that, <laughs> where gratitude would be appropriate rather than anger. Uh, Dave, do you do you keep do you do New Year's resolutions? I do, but my success rate probably isn't any better than Tamler's. Although, you know, now I'm 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 taking my own my own medicine, so to speak, and so you know we'll see how it goes. But I, but I think I think what's important here, you know, you're talking about habits, right? And, and habits can surely work. Um, but the problem with habits is they're very narrow, right? If I have a habit to study, it's going to work as well as long as I'm in the same place and doing the same thing and for studying. Right. But it's not going to help me save money. It's not going to help me eat better. The beautiful thing about these emotions is whatever your future goal is, they they prevent you from engaging in the normal discounting of that future goal's value like we normally do. And so they kind of give you a boost to self-control for whatever those goals may be. And then, you know, they're a little more broad than a habit. But just going back to Dave's point on, on willpower, you know, one of the big strategies economists talk about these days is is pre-commitment. And right. What's pre-commitment except basically... Turn off your fucking phone, Yeah, Dave. sorry, man. <laughs> What's pre... I meant to do that. What's pre-commitment, it's basically, uh, you know, uh, showing the assumption that willpower is not going to work. Um, and so these are, you know, tricks we use to kind of solve the problem. Um, so what would be an example of how cultivating these emotions could help you keep a New Year's resolution? Yeah, so it's... If, let's say, your resolution is to put more money away for retirement rather than spend it on you know, whatever you might, going out to dinner or whatever it might be. Um, Typically, just 
cultivating let's focus on gratitude is one so you know we have work where we follow people for three weeks at a time and we record um, how often they feel different emotions gratitude being one of them and what we find is that people who are who experience gratitude more regularly are also the people who at the end of those three weeks when we give them a financial temptation where they can have a little bit of money now or a lot of money later show a lot more patience and are willing to wait and invest. And other people have shown it with uh, gratitude and compassion tied to less procrastination, better job performance. So whatever your goal may be, cultivating these emotions regularly reduces your tendency to discount the value of the future and makes it therefore easier to persevere toward them, toward those goals. Maybe it's actually helpful to to describe the the sort of standard way in which economists, behavioral economists, psychologists measure sure. um, this this kind of patience. Um, and you you have variations of this in the book. So the standard way of measuring this is uh, uh, these measures of sort of temporal discounting, right? Where you ask people, would you prefer to have whatever five dollars now, or uh, $10 a week from now, or sometimes it's $5 in a week or 10 and, or $10 in two weeks or, or yeah, some yeah, we always, version of this. Yeah, yeah. We always ask some questions of, right. Would you rather have X dollars now or Y dollars in Z days where Y is always greater and Z varies over time periods. In essence, it's, it's an adult version of the marshmallow test. Just adults right. like cash more than marshmallows. Um, <laughs> most adults. And so, um, by, by asking people bunches of questions like this, we can kind of calculate an estimate of, of how much they discount the value of the future. So as an example, right, the typical person in our study who's not feeling any emotion in particular sees a hundred dollars in a year from now is worth seventeen dollars today or another way of saying that is if i gave them seventeen dollars today they'd forego getting a hundred dollars in a year and i don't know about you guys but if you didn't need that seventeen dollars to survive quintupling your money in a year given what the banks are paying in interest is a pretty good deal that leads to i think a very important question which is you know you talk about the evolutionary nature of of this sort of impulse impulsivity um, and why we might have had selective pressures to to make these kinds of mm-hmm. decisions and it seems as if it, it is like the one very obvious answer is the uncertainty associated with future rewards right? yeah exactly so, i mean if this were people say why do individuals make these decisions if they're so irrational and it's not that they're irrational historically. We just have a bit of a miscalibration problem. I mean, the world is so much more certain now than it was for most of our evolutionary history. You know, in the old days, if there was food there, you better eat it. You're not sure it's going to be around. You're not sure you're going to be around. And so there's lots of data out there showing like kids from disadvantaged backgrounds show, you know, they'll they'll grab the first marshmallow. People have said, oh, look, these kids have no self-control. It's not that it's, they don't have self-control. It's and if you're in an environment where you believe there's a lot of uncertainty that the long-term goal is going to come, then it's completely rational to take the short-term one. It's just that right. now right, I can invest my money in a, in a bond or a CD. I know smoking is going to kill me um, later on. And so things are a lot more certain. And so we have a bit of a calibration problem. I, there's something about this whole framework that's always bugged me mm-hmm. because there are assumptions about rationality being made that – um, you know, I, I think are co- often taken as completely uncontroversial, but that seem to me to be fairly controversial. If you're talking about retirement, you're making strong assumptions about, you know, you're going to be the same person as you were then and that 
you want to make sure that you have the most money possible for retirement or you want to maximize or optimize the the work that your money will do for you even that like $100 next year you might think look i could use the $17 now and by by next year i'll i'll, I'll have my money situation sorted out or you could have you could trust in your ability uh with between now and then to improve your situation it, it just always strikes me as it's not so clearly irrational to take those choices and to make those choices and and to say that it is is making a kind of a value judgment about what it is that people ought to be doing yeah in some ways you're right and it depends on the domain you could assume you know you could invest that money in you know maybe you can even go to the casino and do and get a better return if you wanted um you could say if i smoke right now ah they'll you know 20 years from now there'll be a cure for cancer it'll be fine but i think on average you know we know that investing in the long term first for a greater surety is is a better is a better outcome i mean what i base a lot of this on so if you look at the data from you know Martin Novak at Harvard, um, is an evolutionary biologist, and Dave and my friend Dave Rand. You know they have lots of data that show over time the individuals who are the most successful are the individuals who cooperate, who accept short-term costs to invest in relationships with others for the aggregated gains in the long term. And so people say to me, to be a success, should I be a jerk or should I be a nice guy? I say, what's your time frame? You know, if, if you have a very short time frame, be a jerk, uh, exploit that, other people. But that's a different that. question. Yeah, right? yeah, Because yeah. The, the money thing is just about you having money now or you having money later. Yeah. Like, I totally buy that it's being more successful requires that you invest in relationships. Yeah. I just, the way that people measure what's rational and irrational strikes me as... Yeah, I mean, uh, it's fair. It's, it's all it's all a bet. You know, I mean, you, you guys know um, the Hal Hirschfeld studies where he, he, he age morphs people. And so you see yourself what you're going to look like at <laughs> 70 and suddenly you're willing to put more money into retirement. But the interesting part of those studies is he also has one where he, he morphs the emotional expression on future you so future you looks happy or future you looks really sad and when future you looks really sad people invest a lot more money why i would say because you're having compassion for future you and it makes you willing right, to sacrifice right, right. but you're right i mean there's always it's some probability here well and and i think i mean this points to something that that maybe should be clarified which is that when economists talk about rationality they mean something really different than when philosophers talk about rationality mm, it, to yeah. the point where it's frustrating it, the, the way in which economists use rationality. So they, they often mean just self-interest, right? And sometimes they even mean short-term self-interest. Yeah. So, so like the term gets kind of abused. And, and I think that to, you know, maybe it's, it's sort of, you, we won't lose much by just refusing to call one of these rational or irrational, even given the example right. that Dave was giving earlier about people sort of who are hard up for cash. Like it's completely not irrational to take the 17 bucks mm-hmm. now, like if you mm-hmm. needed to pay bills. Yeah. Um, but just to close that loop, right? So if we make people feel grateful in the, when they're doing those financial decisions, what you do is you double their patience, right? So they won't take the $17 option, right? It'll take for them, you know, over $30 before they're willing to forego um, the future reward. And so what you see is just an increased valuation. Or if I'm an economist, you see decreased discounting of the future goal, which basically means it's easier to persevere toward that goal. So how do you make them feel grateful? So there's lots of, there's lots of ways we do it. Um, uh, you know, as Dave knows, one of the things my lab is kind of known for is 
kind of being the the candid camera lab in the sense that I don't know if people, people still know what candid camera is. See how old I am. Now? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. <laughs> It's, anyway, even there, even yeah. there, we're already dating ourselves. <laughs> so true. we set up, we set up situations where, you know, people will come into the lab and, and they'll be working on the computer and it's this god awful task designed to be god awful and the computer's rigged to crash on you. And then somebody will come and offer to help you and you'll feel grateful toward them. But we also do it with ways that are scalable for people and actually that you could use in real life without my crazy setups. And so we found similar results with just having people do gratitude diaries, uh, you know, five minutes a day, take time and reflect on something that you're grateful for. And you, you go out of your way to say gratitude is, is not just feeling indebted, right? So yeah. I do great things for Tamler all the time. Maybe he feels some sort of obligation that's not accompanied by any sort of good feeling. He's just yeah. like, fuck, yeah. now I owe Pete. Like, yeah. now I owe Dave. Yeah, right? no, exactly. So, so, and how do you tease apart just that feeling of indebtedness um, from grat- true gratitude. So, yeah, it's a good point. The, I mean, what we know, there are folks who study indebtedness and, and what you see are differences in the indebtedness effects and gratitude effects. How do we measure it? The only way to really measure it is simply to, to ask people. There's no kind of nonverbal marker, or brain imaging marker that we can do. <laughs> and so not that those are always <laughs> exactly <laughs> right. Look into the brain. You look into the brain. Um, the gratitude area the gratitude, of the brain yeah, lights up. Yeah, yeah David and I module, used yeah. to do somebody, yeah, let's say, I'll, I'll put a toaster in front of you. Look, part of your brain lights up. It's the toaster center. Um, yeah. <laughs> not, I'm not disparaging fMRI friends, don't worry. Um, yeah. And so... Uh, uh, we have. Yeah. Good that's, thing. That, that's kind of our thing. <laughs> yeah. Good thing your colleague Lisa Feldman Barrett probably will never listen to this. <laughs> and so what um what you see is when people feel grateful they as opposed to feeling indebted um not only will they work harder and and pay back more than their debt they also engage in pay it forward behaviors that is that that emotion that you feel makes you willing to then help someone else. I mean, if you think about it, all emotions work the same way. So if I'm really angry because I got in a fight with my boss at work and I go home, I'm probably going to, you know, bite my spouse's head off, even though I'm not angry with her because that anger is influencing how I see the world. Same thing with gratitude. Um, the, the important fact is, do you feel that this person freely helps you to do something in a way that you value right that that was something led to something that you value that you couldn't achieve on your own as opposed to they just gave you another tie for christmas and you're like oh shit now i've got to like give them a gift back um if you feel it was worthwhile that was at some cost to them to do it then you're going to feel grateful um and that will lead you to pay them back and to pay it forward so just to be clear what's so cool about all these studies is you take two things that are seemingly unrelated a person feeling gratitude for somebody else helping them on the computer and them deferring money for themselves to some future time. Mm -hmm. And so these emotions have this kind of indirect effect. Yeah. I mean, for me, so where did this come from? A lot of our work was looking at how these social emotions make people willing to invest in others and cooperate with others. And then we realized, well, I mean, what is cooperation except really an intertemporal dilemma, right? I'm, I'm accepting less profit now to work with you. We'll share it. So in the, ter- in the long term, it'll grow or I'm, I'm helping 
helping you now, so you'll help me later, et cetera. And then we thought, well, you know, if it works this way for investing in other people, maybe it, it works by this discounting mechanism. And so we started looking at how it affects your own behaviors for your own future self. And that's the way it works. Same thing with, with pride. And by pride, I don't mean, you know, arrogant, hubristic, Trumpian pride. I mean, pride in abilities you, you actually have had and cultivated, you know, we'll have people, we make them feel proud about certain abilities that we just kind of created out of thin air that are difficult to do. They'll persevere for 40% longer on developing these abilities. I mean, it's basically giving you grit from the bottom up. One of the things I wanted to to ask about was this. Okay, so we both come from a tradition of studying emotions, Mm -hmm. and we know that like there is this view that you induce an emotion, and it, it, even though that emotion is specific to a particular situation or object, Mm -hmm. that it has this free floating effect. What Tamler was alluding to before, Mm -hmm. but gratitude has always struck me as a weird one, where um, I am grateful to someone. And it feels odd that I would either that that gratitude would lead me to behave better to everyone. Mm-hmm. That's one aspect that puzzles me. And the other, the other is people's claim that they feel gratitude to when there's not an agent who has done something for you. Mm-hmm. So Tom Gilovich always goes around saying this. He's like, well, I don't know. You feel grateful to the universe for having provided this opportunity. And you talk a little bit about Bob Frank's views on luck, mm-hmm. right? And where you can mm-hmm. feel like, and you say you can feel grateful that good things have happened to you, even though there's not an agent there. Yeah. So I just think that latter one is the one that puzzles me more. Like, can you really feel grateful? Like, I think people, for, I, I think yeah. people do logically. Should you? And I think if we all sat down, and even Bob, if you if you sat down and really thought about it, you wouldn't. But you know, we we humans right have this tendency to kind of anthropomorphize things, and so I think it's just our default. So, do I feel gratitude that certain things have worked out for me in my life? Yeah, even though I'm. I spend my life teaching statistics and realize, you know, I realize I probably shouldn't, but yet I do. So I think it's just a beneficial, you know, mental bias that, that we have that allows us to do that, to kind of fill in that agency. Well, and it's a, it's a one thing that is actually uh, weird about sort of if, if you used to believe in, uh, in God yeah. and you no longer believe in God, yeah. so much of religion is thanking God for all these things. Yeah. And then if that goes away, you're like, well... Uh, I mean, it feels weird to thank the universe to me. I actually get it, I think. It happens when I see a movie, like a documentary about people who are either psychologically really messed up or their circumstances are such that, you know, they they really have to struggle. And I do feel this general sense of gratitude, like, holy shit, like, I won the frickin' lottery in just how I was born, the cycle, you know, the, 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 the that I don't have any serious psychological problems. Like that, it's a lot and, of assumptions. Well, assume those things were true. I'm grateful I mean, for the above What's important effect. is that I feel yeah. that. And then yeah. I do kind of feel, I don't know what affects it has on me, but I do kind of feel yeah. grateful and, and almost to the point of like, it's not fair, you know? Yeah. It's interesting because Bob's point, Bob Frank's point um, in his book is something like um, we should realize that much of our success is spurious and due to circumstances mm-hmm. that are, it would be ridiculous to take credit for them. Mm-hmm. And it almost is opposite to feeling gratitude where where gratitude seems to to be an attitude 
where you're accepting gracefully the fact that you were randomly chosen, not just the spurious nature of, of, of statistic, you know, stochastic things that caused you to be better looking or whatever, you know? I don't think though that the feeling is that you are dwelling on how little you had to do with it, it. It's more just grateful for what, the world has given you <laughs> yeah but th- but it is important right because when we so a lot of this research we've gone to show that it wasn't just about feeling good and so in most of these studies right we compare right. the effects of gratitude versus happiness and we find very distinct effects and i think it's it's hearkening back to what dave was saying i think it's there has to be somewhere whether it's an accurate assumption assertion or not the sense that <laughs> some power even if that's randomness um gave me something that I couldn't have achieved on my own. And I think we just want to see agency. I mean, we're built to see agency in places. And so we're going to feel that emotion there. So is it just a descriptive truth that we don't then? So like, it feels to me like if you, you have to kind of bite the bullet, if you're grateful to the universe for having given you your positive qualities, that you would resent the universe for the negative stuff that happens. Like, I'd be like, you know, well, fuck the universe. Like, my wife left me, you know? No, right. Yeah, I mean, you feel victimized, even though you know there's no cause. You feel, look, there are, you know, 80% of people this didn't happen to. Why why me? And some people right. can, I guess, accept that, you know, in a very non-emotional way. But I, I would think that takes a lot of mental gymnastics to jump through that, <laughs> those hoops. But let me let, let me go back to your to your first point, which is yeah. why, why would I help somebody else, which seems very, right. very odd. And so, you know, if you think about what purpose you say we're both emotion researchers which is true what what purpose do emotions serve they set the priors right for your next decision they set the expectancy for how you're going to respond to whatever's coming next and so if you're feeling grateful and what gratitude really is is an emotion that makes you more willing to accept sacrifice to pay your benefactor back if i then at that moment swap in somebody else you're just willing to say yes you're willing to help other people you're willing to pay it forward um, but the interesting thing in our lab to show that this is what it really does is we ran a version of the study where, <clears throat> excuse me, the computer breaks, you're really upset, someone helps you and it, they fix it, you're grateful to them and then um, you see this person down the hall later and, and they ask you for help and you help them and we show it with a stranger too. But in one version before the subjects leave, we say to them, hey, you know when your computer broke, that person, let's call him Joe, um, helped you, right? And they say yes. And we said, oh, so you feel really grateful to Joe for that, right? And they're like, yeah, we do. And then they leave. Then if a stranger asks them within a minute or two, they don't help the per- guy more. Uh, so because they've, they've we've, tagged it properly. Right, we've uh, tagged that gratitude to that person. They can't make that, that hmm. it, it's kind of like knowing my boss, I'm really mad at my boss, I shouldn't yell at my wife or my kids. And But right. the really other aspect of that study that's important is if it were just a norm to be good, we just reinstantiated the norm that someone helped you. It should make you pay it forward, but it doesn't. It's really that misattribution of the emotion. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Can we talk about your pride studies yeah, yeah, and, sure. and, and how pride is also an effective way of getting, yeah. of improving willpower or self-control? Yeah, sure. I mean, pride, you know, pride always seems like the, the odd one out of these three. And I think it's because most people think of pride these days in kind of the arrogant, hubristic, me, me, me sense of it. And that's clearly not going to be an adaptive thing. And uh, there's work by um, a guy named Eddie Tong, who's a psychologist at University, uh, National University of Singapore, where he shows 
authentic pride, feeling pride in your deserved abilities actually attenuates discounting. But individuals who show more hubristic pride, you don't get that effect. And so for me, why does pride fit in? Well, pride is really a social emotion in the sense that what often what we're proud of are things that other people around us see as something important. You see this with kids all the time. You know, how do you shape their behavior? You praise them for doing certain things, and those are the things they internalize as, as being worthwhile. The negative aspect of that is peer pressure. The positive aspect of that is building pride. And so for us, I would argue pride historically served the function of making people want to develop skills that made them valuable to the group. And because we can have a third person, you know, humans can have a third person stance on themselves. We can be our own audience, but that's not the original way it worked. So to the studies, I'll give you an example. We, um, We'll bring people in and we'll have them do this really boring, what we call visual, visual spatial test. Nobody really gives a damn about their visual spatial ability, but we'll give them false feedback that have how they did on the test. And some people get no feedback. Some people get feedback that they did well. Some people get feedback that they did equally well, but they also get praise. So the experimenter will be like, you know, that was really good. They'll pat them on the back. They'll give them nonverbal expressions of, of admiration, talk about how this is a really important skill. Then what you find is we give them another visuospatial task that's made to be god-awful, onerous, and difficult. And the people who are feeling pride will work on it and they'll persevere on it 40% longer than will the others, even those who know they're good at it. And why is that? Because that social acclaim is marketed as something of value that it's worth sacrificing for to achieve. Right. That's actually, you know, such a such a critical um, part of of child rearing, which you, you talk about reward and, and punishment. We often say reward works better than punishment. That's sort of a classic reliable finding. But what's lost in that is that um, something that you discuss in your book, which is that reward and reward isn't all the same thing. And mm-hmm. there is something that is really special about about patting your kid on the back and telling them how proud you are of them. I just had this yeah. experience with, with um, my daughter who was, who was engaging and sort of spontaneously started doing um, a particular activity that I was like really proud of her for nice. doing just and for initiating on her own. Uh-huh. And, you know, the way to squelch it would have been to, to say like, hey, if you keep doing that, I'll pay you 20 bucks every time you do it. Right, right. right. And we, we know that from the leper studies. But there's <clears throat> a big that. difference between material rewards and social rewards. And for somebody to say like, wow, I'm really proud of you, like somebody that you value, like it really does embiggen you. And, you know, I can I can sort of even hearken back to examples where I felt that way. Like, wow, I'm good at something and I'm good at something that somebody else values, yeah. you know. Yeah, absolutely. Child rearing, like dissertation advising, <laughs> yeah. you know, every. Yeah. Every aspect of it, I think, is it's so crucial to and 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 you can see here it's less counterintuitive how how it relates to perseverance because that is the kind of thing that you that you crave and that gives you sort of personal self confidence and self esteem Mm -hmm. who are um, you know who are in the beginning stages of whatever it is that they're doing. Yeah. The other aspect in this book that I talk about these social emotions and why they're they're a more beneficial route to go is you know so. David Brooks spends a lot of time talking about what he calls resume virtues versus eulogy virtues. You know, those resume virtues are the things you need to get ahead, like being hard-nosed, working hard, et cetera. 
eulogy virtues are the ones you want to be remembered for or you know when we're when we're at our fest drift someday right which which for professors or when they when they retire and your students talk about you we don't want them to say he was really hard-nosed and drove me right we want them to say right. you were kind and generous and a source right. of inspiration right. your eulogy he would virtues. send me emails at 3 a.m with feedback <laughs> that's right yeah. um you know there shouldn't be a, a dichotomy between these two. I think there is because of the way we kind of pursue success in a kind of atomistic, individualized way now. But if you cultivate these emotions, right, not only do they make you have greater perseverance, have greater self-control and grit, et cetera, but they just by virtue of the way they shape your behavior, they make you invest in others and others. It, they increase your social capital. And what that does is it reduces your loneliness and it builds the, the social bonds that are going to sustain you for those bumps in life as you go along. Which is the most important thing, more important than like how much you save for retirement <laughs> or Right. I mean, those are the things that make life worth living. Exactly. I mean, you know, if you look at a great work on loneliness by psychologist John Cassiopo, you know, it shows that being lonely is about as deleterious to your health as smoking in terms of what it's going to do to your to your longevity. I mean, no wonder I'm always sick. (laughs) I should, you know, I thought that that like that that large pillow that I curl up with in the fetal position every night would would be a proxy for my loan like to but no I'm I'm just it's because you chose a prestigious Ivy League university <laughs> in like the in most BFD. isolated imaginable yeah. place yeah. rather than you know yeah. a nice big diverse city but not it's true quite the prestige you know? I want to be remembered for my resume <laughs> my, yeah. um, I think there's t- to me like my favorite insight, yeah. and I don't know if this is obvious or if I just hadn't thought about it, or 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 whether this is just true of all people, which is that when when these emotions are what's driving your behavior, what it's doing is it's not magically increasing your willpower. Right. It is it's not giving you better resources. And a lot of w- sort of research on self control and willpower is is sort of this resource model, like like how much how much do you have stored up that you can exert and mm-hmm. and some things maybe like will give you more stores of willpower. But rather as you as you phrase it, it's not increasing your ability, it's actually increasing how valuable you see the reward right. and therefore making it easier. And right. I think that's the key, it's which the key. is that, that there, there really are two ways you, you could have an equally disdainful task. In one case, you have a lot of willpower stored up and you use it and you succeed. In another case, you don't have a lot of willpower stored up and you don't succeed. Or you could have the same amount of willpower. And in another, in one case, you just value the reward more. And that makes it flow, right? That makes the behavior actually much more automatic. It makes it much more automatic and it makes it much less stressful. So, you know, there's there's this great study by a guy named Greg Miller at um, at Northwestern. And what he shows, he looked at kids from disadvantaged backgrounds. And what he showed is the kids who had better self-control, kind of you know, using willpower and planning and all the, you know, tricks that, that people use for kind of cognitive strategies. Um they resisted temptation, but at a cost, right? So what it, what he showed through a DNA methylation test is that they actually had premature aging of their immune cells, which basically extrapolated out means, yeah, you're going to succeed, but you're not going to be around as long to enjoy it. And I think it's because what you're doing is you're always in this constant state of stress where you're trying to suppress a desire. And so I, I talk about it as willpower is kind of like a candle in the wind. You're trying to shield shield your, your weak flame to, to do the right thing, whereas these emotions kind of give give fuel to the fire, right? If you value the future more, 
it's not a fight to choose to pursue that over something you value in the present. And I think it's just a, a more robust way of, of getting there. So by transitivity, willpower is like Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's like it's an Elton John reference. <laughs> <laughs> but one, 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 one last thing, we talked about two of the things that I say are the, are the problems with kind of following willpower and rationality. The third is, right, we assume that we're going to know what the right goal is. But one of the things I study in my lab is cheating. And, you know, what we know is that when we give people anonymity so they think there's no cost, the majority of them will cheat, even though going in they say, no, one should never cheat. And most people think, oh, well, this is because their emotions were pushing them to get out. Their willpower wasn't strong enough. But... If we put them under a cognitive load, which is a fancy term, right, psychologists use to basically tie, it means we're tying up your reasoning, we're distracting you so you can't engage in reasoning. Um, suddenly people recognize their own failures to, to, to kind of cheat are just as bad as somebody else's failures, whereas normally you would excuse yourself. And what this suggests is if we have motivated reasoning. Sometimes we can talk ourselves into why I should buy the iPhone 10 instead of put money away for retirement, why it's okay, why I deserve to eat the Ben and Jerry's at 2 a.m. or cheat someone else. And if we if we convince ourselves or talk ourselves into why it's okay, we're never going to invoke willpower in the first place. Whereas if you cultivate or induce these social emotions, they're only going to push you one way. They're only going to push you toward long-term uh, investment and short-term sacrifice. And so in that sense, they're a more reliable nudge, so to speak. So let's say I buy into your program, which I do. How do you cultivate yeah. something as yeah. broad as gratitude and pride? How do you, yeah. you know, if you don't have somebody, if you don't have the parent that's telling you they're so proud of you and they love you and they, or, or the, the dissertation advisor that remembers how important it was yeah. to them to hear that, well, yeah, well, how, how do you, how do you do that? So there are a few different ways. So let's do one emotion at a time. So with gratitude, the easiest way and the way that we find that works as well as the crazy situations that I set up for people in my lab is simply doing daily reflections on something you're grateful for. Now, the trick is we all have two or three things that we're incredibly grateful for in life. But if you think of those same two or three things every day, you're going to habituate to them. They're going to lose their power. And so what we advise people to do is simply to think about simple kindnesses that people have done for you. Did someone let you in? on the expressway today? Did someone help you with a problem you had? Did someone hold the door for you? Little things like that that you're grateful for. It doesn't need to be this intense, crazy amount of gratitude. Little small amounts in our work work just as well in terms of increasing patience and perseverance. Um, compassion, two ways I would say. One is, uh, and it'll sound hokey, but it's, it's practicing mindfulness or meditation. If you think about that, where did it come from, right? If you read the Times or the Atlantic, you know, mindfulness and meditation will lower your blood pressure. It'll make you more creative. It'll give you a better memory. Yeah, it does all that, but that's not why it was created. You know, Buddha didn't give a damn about your 401k. Um, it was designed to increase ethical behavior and compassion. And so we have a lot of work showing how even short periods of meditation over as little as three weeks increase people's compassion for for others. Another way is perspective taking. So if you every day or two just stop and think about try and put yourself in someone else's shoes and to understand the world from their point of view, especially if it's someone who may be from a different group than yours, that actually increases compassion. And here, like gratitude, we have work showing if I feel compassion for Dave, um, and then, Tamler, I'm confronted with you who needs help, 
I will help you. It will bleed over in the same way. And so it doesn't matter who you're thinking about. Just feeling that emotion regularly is important. And having self-compassion for yourself when you fail. Um, Serena Chen at Berkeley has got great work showing how people who engage in more self-compassion procrastinate less, show greater grit and perseverance on their tasks. When I when I show yeah. self-compassion, I really don't get anything else done. That <laughs> well, you, you, <laughs> it has to be wise compassion that is not compassion for not even trying, <laughs> for trying and failing. Um, it strikes me that this is one of those things that is such a clear individual difference. And I buy that these manipulations work, and that's probably yeah. why people should do mindfulness meditation yeah. or, or keep a journal or whatever. I am so just constitutionally grateful as a person that um, being an ingrate is is the worst thing. Like, it's one of the worst character traits. And you come across these people who are who you do things for them, and they never fucking give you even, like, the slightest thank you. Tamler and I have talked about, like, in, it writs very small when you hold the door open for somebody and they don't even right. acknowledge it. Right. Like, yeah. or, or, or you don't to, get the wave when you let somebody in on the highway. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, fuck you. <laughs> like, yeah. Well, you know, it's funny. We, we did the study on meditation and compassion, and we basically showed that people who had meditated, the, 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 the variable was you would see someone walking on crutches who looked in pain and needed help, and would you go help them? And what we found is, you know, it was the average 15% of people who didn't meditate did it, 50, 50% who meditated did. But when I wrote about this piece for the Times, I got this letter to the editor from this nice Southern gentleman who said, you people up there in the North in Boston, you don't need meditation, you need manners. I was shocked at that result. Yeah. And and I would and I would I would bet I my my prediction I don't know if it's true that yeah. that's not something that would happen in most southern. It would be, although truth be told, we did it as a bystander intervention. So we we had other actors around who were ignoring right. the person in pain, which we know makes it a situation where helping is less. But I'm sure there are cultural differences. But you know, Dave's talking about this as 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 individual differences. I I think that's right. It doesn't matter where the emotion comes from. But if you think about this, you know, who who talks about these emotional virtues a lot? It's moralists and it's religions. And I know a lot of scientists out there and psychologists in particular want nothing to do with religion. But for those of us who actually study social behavior, I mean, what do religions do? For thousands of years, their goal has been to try and solve the problem of how the hell do we all live together in a way that's productive. And so looking to them for insights like we did for this meditation work, I think is quite useful. It doesn't mean we buy into the dogma. It doesn't mean we're not going to test those ideas in a rigorous, objective, scientific way. But I think there's some knowledge there that is worth considering and putting to the test. And so I, I think, you know, when we talk about these these emotions, they're, they're typically virtues in most of the world's religions. And I think there's a reason for that. Yeah, is there any religion that says, like, don't be grateful? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> um, I'm curious, Dave, do you do all these things? I know, I'm know. i assuming, based on the, your description in the book, that you meditate. I right do. I, I, I mean, I'm trying to do these things more. And for me, it's, it's as anybody else, it's a matter of time. But, and so what I talk about is you've got to do these things almost as habits, and they are habits. But the beauty of of cultivating these emotions, whether it's a gratitude journal or meditating as a habit is, it then feeds forward and helps all your goals. Whereas a normal habit to just, you know, in, take all your change and put it in your account or whatever is only good for that one goal. And also doesn't give you the increase in social capital. So yeah, I am. And I feel weird saying this because I feel like I'm, 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 I'm pitching my program. I don't have a program, but I will say that I feel a difference in my ability to, to, to kind of 
persevere toward what I want to in a way that I feel more relaxed about and comfortable in than I have in the past. You know, despite Tamler giving me, I wish viewer uh, listeners could have seen the crazy face Tamler gave me when I was bragging about how grateful I am constitutionally. <laughs> um, it wasn't uh, a crazy face; it was a more skeptical face. Although I actually, if if I'm being honest, I, I, I would have to agree. With that. I actually, you know, like for whatever it's worth, like I I really really am so grateful for so many so many people and i often am puzzled by one of the things i wanted to ask is why are people reluctant to express gratitude in my experience it is such a win-win and here's like let me take my little slice of academic life say uh there is somebody who really influenced you and you're thinking and um you're really a fan of theirs and you see them at an academic conference People are reluctant, I think, to say like, hey, you know, I want to thank you for your work or whatever, because maybe they think that they're going to seem as if they're a kiss ass or that people don't want to hear it. But I've never had the experience where if I do that, even to a complete stranger, I'm not met with like complete warmth and disarming. No, right there, you're hitting on one of the social benefits of these emotions, right? That is they draw other people to you. They mark you as somebody of good character who they want to associate with, which used to be so the problem. So why are people so reluctant? Because yeah. I think p- many people in kind of our kind of, you know, alpha male driving culture see gratitude as a sign of weakness. And Bob talks about this in his book, right? People don't yeah. want to attribute things to luck in this because it seems like, well, then I didn't do it myself or they don't want to attribute it to somebody else's help because it makes you seem weak. I, to me, gratitude is really... A very powerful. It's not a passive emotion. It's powerful. I mean, you wouldn't feel this emotion if it were only about the past. Gratitude is right. about the future, and so is compassion and pride, because what it does is it makes you willing then to invest in paying that person back and building those relationships. And so I think we have this sense that it makes us seem in somehow weak that we couldn't do it on our on our own. But I think right. that's a that's a that's just a cultural thing of of the times we're in. I don't think it's a, a okay. So here's a study I've always yeah. wanted to run because I think that people do think this, and I think it 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 can get to one of the sources is this sort of attribution game that we play. So mm-hmm. we say, okay, um, I say Tamler, you've written a book, you have a an amazing podcast with an amazing co-host. Um, <laughs> Like how, how, like what brought you here? Tell me the story of what brought you here. And you can imagine that you could tell the story by saying, well, I worked really hard. I found what I was interested in. I went to this school. I did this and this. The other way you could tell it is you could say, these aren't the only two ways, but imagine these two Mm -hmm. ways um, where you say, you know, I got to say, like, I'm really thankful for my advisor opened this door. This chance accident uh, led me to meet this other person. And you give a lot of credit. Right, like an Oscar acceptance speech. Mm-hmm. Now, I give two people, two people telling the same story of their success, one in which they're uh, giving credit and expressing mm-hmm. gratitude to a lot of people. Now, it could be that you say, well, now if I, if I had to just give a mathem- mathematical answer about the, the cause of your success, maybe I would say you were 20% the cause and these other people were the... But I don't think people do that. I think that... In the first person, we think it undermines our work sometimes. But in the third person, when you're listening to somebody at an acceptance speech, thank all of the people who, without them, nothing would have ever happened in their career. I don't think anybody thinks like, oh, so it wasn't you? <laughs> right? Yeah. No, I don't. I, I think that's right. I think, 
I mean, really what it does is it just marks that person as somebody. So we, I, I don't think we discount their efforts, but it marks that person as somebody who is honest and trustworthy and cooperative themselves and who and maybe worthy and worthy, worthy exactly of worthy right. of investing in. Right. And that's, right. that's the reason why these emotions matter. They were markers that were worthy of investing in and we'll pay you back. And that's what, I mean, to me, really morality is the problem of cooperation. And really, I think it's the problem of intertemporal choice. A lot of morality yeah. really is about, I can do something now that's going to feel really good, but it's going to get me in trouble or I can delay that gratification and in some ways reap the benefits down the line. And so I think it's, and these were the emotions that supported that and marked us among our colleagues and friends as people who who was worthwhile investing in. And now we can use those emotions to cooperate with our future self. But we're, we're, we've forgotten about that, right? We're fighting the battle of grit and self-control with one hand tied behind our back, and it's the stronger hand, I think. And so it's not that willpower doesn't work. It's that these, these emotions can be really powerful to, to persevere in the face of great difficulty because we feel these emotions that push us. And I think that can be a hugely powerful source of motivation if we pivot it to help our own, our own selves in the future. It's funny the way you talk about it sometimes. Like it was earlier, you said loneliness, deep loneliness, is actually really bad for your longevity. Mm-hmm. It's like maybe it is, maybe it is. But even if it was good for your longevity, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's still it bad, would, right? It's, it's still, still bad, right? Worth right. it? You no, know? no, like exactly. Yeah, I mean, you just <laughs> don't want to live a lonely right. life. Well, well, and the yeah. reason the reason it's painful, yeah. right, is because it's bad for you. Exactly, right. right. And that's so why, that's why I go to bed every night thinking this life is too long. <laughs> oh please you have you have more friends than anyone i know my friend and i'm lucky to count myself as one of them so is one strategy so i'm thinking in really pragmatic terms because it's yeah. it's kind of hard to just say i want to i i have this goal so i'm gonna feel pride at it yeah. is one of the tricks to find goals that you know you would be proud to achieve is is the trick just picking the right right is can are we gaming it so that the emotion those emotions will be easier to experience by ch- sort of self-selecting into the right kinds of- yeah there's two ways i mean one is to the extent that you can do that that will help but the beauty of these is no matter what your goal is as long i mean you have to value it somewhat right you have to see it as something of some value or it's not going to be a goal right. um, but even for ones that it would be hard to feel pride about initially if you make yourself feel grateful, if you make yourself feel compassionate about entirely other things, they still decrease the amount that you're going to discount the value of that future goal. In other words, they make you value it more than you would have. I mean, so for our studies, you know, we'll make people work on a visual spatial task that's really onerous and tedious, and they have no, in, they don't enter the experiment with any inherent desire to do so, but we make them feel proud and they will. So to the extent that you can make the emotion map on in a really so integral way to the goal, I think that's even better, but it's not necessary. So that's where like the social part comes in because I can see somebody expressing pride in me mm-hmm. for something that I wouldn't have had like mm-hmm. pride in doing. But like gaming it so that I start feeling pride in something that like I only mildly cared about, like that seems harder. Like yeah, I but almost if need it's... to pay people to come around and tell me they're proud. <laughs> but if it's a goal, right? If it's a goal, you have to value it at some sense and therefore yeah. you're going to be somewhat proud of, of, of achieving it. But that aside, to the extent that you can feel proud or grateful about something else in a, in a, in a time frame that's close to when you're going to make the decision to try and work on that one, it will just simply make you value whatever that goal is more and help you have the patience. 
The way I think about it is who who struggles the most daily with issues of self-control and temptation? People who have an addiction, whether it's gambling, drugs, sex, whatever it may be. Um, these are the folks who are, deal- who are dealing with this, who every day are, are kind of giving in for immediate pleasure that they know is going to be a problem in the long run. How do they solve it? Any of these organic groups that grow up around them, none of them say, you need more willpower, try harder. They don't. What you see are things like developing gratitude lists, pride in sobriety coins, right? That is, uh, today I was clean and I'm taking pride in that and those around me will give me pride for it. Self-compassion for your failures. And so one can argue that the reason these groups do this is that brains of addicts are different from people. That is, they don't have the same level of executive function to resist temptations. But an equally possible alternative is willpower isn't strong enough to deal with these issues. And the reason they don't use it and they use these emotional bonds is because those are just, you know, more important ways of getting there. Did you, after all this discussion, did you ever see yourself writing uh, what could easily be pitched as a self-help book? <laughs> no, and I hate that I label. I thought you were a basic scientist. I hate that label, yeah. You call right. it emotional success. Well, trust me, I, 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 it's not my favorite title. My, my <laughs> editor liked it, but I couldn't come up with anything that I liked better. So that's the problem with it. And yeah, I mean, I, so what I like is, is he has a term for this. What does he call it? Rigorous self-help or something like this, right? It's like, I'm writing a book on science. To me, what, what's interested about, what's interesting about this book is, hey, it's going to hopefully change our, our, our scientific understanding of how we go about, or how we understand how self-control works. To the extent that it can help people in the greater good, I'm all for that. But, you know, I'm not about, I'm going to develop the Desteno program. And <laughs> for 1999, you can get my, my DVD. <laughs> It's funny what a stigma that has because you might think there's absolutely nothing wrong <laughs> with helping no, people and there's improve, not. I think it's the improve sti- their lives. No, and I'm glad to do that. I think the stigma yeah. is because so much of it isn't science. Based. It's crock, you don't right, want it right. right. You don't want yeah, to be exactly. Yeah. So much of it is is total bullshit. I yeah. think if it hadn't been, if if the genre hadn't been corrupted to such well, yeah. a degree, exactly. Yeah. yeah, and for what it's worth, like I'll say, this is a. But if you're if you are expecting to read something that is fluffy self help, <clears throat> this is gonna. Uh, violate your expectations because there's a lot, a lot of specific detailed descriptions of studies. Tamler, before we end, you wanted to ask a question that I think we really ought to ask, which is um, a general question, right? Yeah, it's a general question that I have about a lot of social psychology experiments. Actually, some of what you've said has alleviated my worries on this front, but take mm-hmm. that the pride study mm-hmm. that we've talked about. You're talking about someone giving you a pat on the back Mm -hmm. for a task that you don't give a shit about, but they're, they make you feel that positive emotion and, 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 and then you, you sort of generalize this to pride in general. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, is, is that a leap we can make, um, to say that a stranger, praising you for doing this cognitive task is anything remotely like um, psychologically, anything remotely like the pride you feel in your accomplishments in your career Mm -hmm. or in being a good father or in... They seem Mm -hmm. such different categories and yet it does seem like um, in your book, but really this is just a general social psychology issue, mm-hmm. people tend to assume, okay, so this study supports the fact that the kind of pride that we're talking about in the big sense um, will help 
to achieve yeah. whatever goals I, you have. Yeah, it's a good question, and and I think we can for a number of reasons. So let me tell you why, and you can tell me if you if you agree with me. One on the very micro level, when when we do these studies, what what we're showing is that. Um, when people persevere on the next task, they think they're done. They don't think they're going to see the experimenter anymore. Um, and yet they do it. And the argument there is they're doing it because this has now been marked as something. And they and they report that they're feeling proud. And we know that the degree to which they report feeling pride predicts how long they persevere in a dose-response kind of way, whereas other positive emotions don't. Now, that on its own isn't so satisfying, but I think it helps us a bit. If you look at other work out there inducing pride just by simply having people recall times that they feel proud, this is work by Eddie Tong, he shows the same effect on discounting, which is the mechanism we're relying on. But what's most convincing to me is if you look at studies that are done in the field, so uh, Adam Grant at Wharton and Amy Wersniewski at Yale SLM have this study, uh, or sorry, wait, was it? I think it's those two. I know it's Adam. Anyway, it's not important to give. It's credit not to important. The author, yeah. <laughs> anyway, but you know they'll they'll do the study where they're looking at folks in a, who are working in a call center, right, and talk about where you need grit to persevere. You're, you're always getting hung up by my people saying, "No, I'm not giving you money for your for your charity." Um, what they find is that when the uh, supervisor expresses gratitude to people, they will persevere 50% longer and increase the number of calls they do by doubling them and their success rate to get that job done. Also, when they anticipate feeling proud, they report, I'm, I'm feeling proud, I'm doing well, I think my, my supervisor is going to recognize this. Their efforts go up dramatically. So then the mechanisms are work, that same mechanism you see at every level, both the macro and the little micro yeah, lab experiments. exactly. And, and in the book, I point that out because if all I had were the macro or the micro lab experiments, I would say, look, this is pretty good evidence that we should investigate this in the real world. But in each right. case, for each of these emotions, we have field studies showing the same thing in the real world where I can target the mechanism in the lab. And so for those reasons, I, I, I have faith that what we're doing here is capturing a real world phenomenon. Thank, I actually find that answer to be pretty satisfactory. So. Yeah, if I can convince a philosopher, I'm happy. I, Thank you. <laughs> there's one last thing that I wanted yeah. to ask, which should be a quick question, which is, you know, part of the problem with studying emotions is that the the words that we use <clears throat> don't necessarily map on very nicely to the the particular um, whatever dis- divisions among emotions that we might think are there yeah. right so like the word pride you sit you you know you, you offered the caveat at the beginning like you don't mean arrogance or whatever what is that about pride that makes it seem to so many people a negative is it a completely different emotion do all languages have this dual use of the word pride where it's sometimes this good thing and sometimes it's like one of the worst vices you can yeah i don't i don't know because if it, i think i think most cultures have a sense of this dualism but whether they have mm-hmm. different words or they use the same word i don't know um but it is true i mean if if you look at right catholic theology i'm a catholic so i'll say this right, right? that pride is not only one of the seven deadly sins it is the seventh and most deadly sin um but right. yet you know Old school pride, having pride in your work to develop a good product is very attractive. And when we do work in our lab, if, if we make people feel proud and they show their pride for an ability they actually have, it draws other people to them and they want to work with them. And I mean, this happens with any, any emotion that's felt in the wrong intensity or the wrong context is a problem. Do it too often, it's a disorder, right? Even happiness. If you feel happiness too right. often and in, too, in the wrong context, it, we call it mania. It's just that in pride, 
we can see those contextual differences a little bit more because we have a name for that wrong aspect of it, which is arrogance and hubris. When you're feeling pride too much or in conditions where you don't, it's not deserved. Even gratitude, you could be overly grateful. Sure. Um, yeah, any, exactly. If you're yeah. overly sad, we call it depression. If you're overly angry, we call it like, you know, hostility and, and, and stuff. So it's all about, you know, the wisdom in using these as tools, right, is, is getting the match in terms, of, in terms of dose and context right. All right. Well, Dave, thank you for joining us. Like I said, I'm on board. I already meditate, but maybe I'll try this gratitude journal. I'll be I can find some something inside me that's grateful to Pizarro. So I'll be waiting. You know? I'll be eagerly <laughs> waiting the, the email. The, a wor- word of thanks. Word of <laughs> uh, each, no, thanks. Each, each episode with a word of thanks for Dave. <laughs> Didn't you see the your paragraph in the acknowledgments? Did you at least read that part of my book? I actually did. Yes. Thank yeah. you very much. I, I, I'm very grateful to yeah. uh, in general and specifically for giving me some shine. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dave. That was fun. Thanks, guys, uh, for having me on. We will, we will uh, put a link in the show notes to your book. Um, it, you can find it at any self-help uh, section of your <laughs> <laughs> local uh, emotional success. Uh, and thank you. Thanks, guys. Just a very bad wizard.